the scripture. Comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If, any, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, you have uh, cast a vision in your word for the flourishing of all creation, and that vision really begins with the flourishing of the church. A people called by your name, a a people set apart for your purposes, a royal priesthood uh, whose role is to intercede and to serve and to witness Uh, to the world around her, a holy nation called to set an example of humility and righteousness and joy and peace before the world. Father, now more than ever, our world needs the church. Uh, Our our world needs the church to show them the way of Jesus. Our world needs the church to proclaim the truth of Jesus. Our world needs the church to model the life of Jesus and to share the love of of Jesus. And so this morning, Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to raise up godly, Christ-like leaders in our midst that we might become the church the town of Parker needs us to be. Father, we pray that you would, you, would, you would equip the godly, Christ-like leaders who are already in our midst that we might become the church our nation needs us to be. We ask you to send forth from our midst the godly, Christ-like leaders um, into the world that the world so desperately needs this today. And we We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, if you've been around Pepsi for any length of time, you have, again, probably heard me say that godly Christ-like leadership is our greatest and most abundant resource here at Pepsi. We're truly blessed to have a church family full of godly women and godly men um, who seek the mind of Christ and are motivated by the love of Christ and They not only serve as elders and deacons, but they serve in various staff positions. They serve as ministry leaders. And they serve not only here at Pepsi, but into our community as well, into our schools and businesses and homes and neighborhoods. And whenever I travel the country and and work with churches that are struggling, I do that quite a bit. One of the things I always come away with 
um, is just how blessed I am as a pastor by the leadership of our church family. It is a gift. Amen? Um, everything rises and falls on leadership. We, we know this to be true. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, just the last couple of years, right? August 2021, you probably remember the headlines, the Taliban sweeping through the country of Afghanistan, rolling back 20 years of investment by the United States and NATO of precious blood and treasure. Afghan security forces, no match for them, routed in every region. Why? Because they lacked leadership. They lacked leadership. President Ashraf Ghani fled the country rather than stay and rally his people. You contrast that with the example that President Zelensky of Ukraine has set. You know, when, when he was offered an out, he famously said, I need ammunition, not a ride. All right? And, and, and that was powerful. And that, of course, has made the rounds. Now, we don't know how that conflict's going to end, but we do know that Ukraine's remarkable ability to resist the Russians is due in part because of the leadership of their president. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And what's true in the world is also true in the church. And over the years, I, I've been asked to work with churches and church leaders across the country, mostly when they're facing a crisis. Sometimes the issue is sexual sin. Sometimes the issue is uh, spiritual abuse. Sometimes the issue is financial impropriety. Sometimes the issue has to do with power and control. In every case, the first step is always to gather the leaders who are left together, and I can usually tell from that first meeting where it's all going to go, right? If the leaders are humble and they're honest and they're transparent and are willing to set aside their own agendas to seek the mind of Christ together, then the chances for a healthy recovery for that congregation are strong. But if the leaders are prideful and stubborn, if they try to hide behind non-disclosure agreements or refuse to take any responsibility for the mess that they find themselves in, if they continue to look for the quick fix, rather than doing the hard work of seeking God together, then I know the chances of a healthy recovery are slim and next to none. And sadly, I find that the latter scenario is far more common than the former, and it breaks my heart, because everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, leadership, according to Scripture, has less to do with your competency and more to do with your character. All right, let me say that again. This is so critical for us to understand. Leadership has less to do with your competency, so much more to do with your character. It has less to do with your charisma and so much more to do with your um, calling. It has less to do with your gifts and skills and abilities and so much more to do with your spiritual maturity as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the heart of the passage that we just read this morning, that, that, that's really what Paul is talking about here. And so if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, and I hope you do, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew or the chair around you. It's that black covered book. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. It is our gift to you this morning. As you're finding your place, let me just tell you, as I read through that passage, right, I, I think to myself, I have to confess, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I feel qualified to serve as your pastor. I mean, I can go right down that checklist, and I can think of all the many ways that I have failed. I know my ability to sin is only exceeded by my ability to rationalize away my sin. Like, I, I get that. That is how I operate. That is how I work. And I know I'm not always sober-minded or self-controlled. I know that I am often selfish and greedy. I know how I love to debate and argue. I grieve over the fact that two of my children are not currently walking with the Lord. And so how in the world, I wrestled with that this week, how in the world can I stand up here with any degree of integrity 
Thankfully, the Holy Spirit spoke to me through one of our elders here at Pepsi. He and I met on Friday morning, and I shared my struggle with him. And he encouraged me to stop looking at this passage as a checklist because that's not how God works, amen? Right? He's not Santa Claus up in heaven with his list, checking it twice to see who's naughty or nice. That's not how the Lord works, right? We don't live under a covenant of works. We live under a covenant of grace, right? And, qual- and the qualifications listed here in this passage, much like the 613 laws listed in Leviticus, are really meant to frame a covenantal way of life. A covenantal understanding of life. They're meant to shape our understanding of what a life for God looks like. And as leaders, we should do all that we can to model these things, but we will never be perfect. We will not always hit the mark. And thankfully, we don't have to because Jesus did. And Jesus still does. All right? And so as we work our way through this passage this morning, I want to continue to reinforce this sort of covenantal understanding of of leadership and life in the church because I truly believe it is the key to fighting um, that inner critic that we all battle on a daily basis that's constantly telling us all the ways that we fall short. All right, it's that, that inner accuser that we all have inside us who's constantly shaming us and telling us that we're not worthy of God's love, that inner Pharisee we all struggle with who drives us to try and earn our way into God's graces, earn our way into heaven. That is not what it's about, friends. Only the gospel has the power to shut those voices down and to teach us how to live under the covenant of grace. And so let's look at uh, what Paul has to say here. He's, he begins by talking to Timothy about a covenantal calling. A covenantal calling. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, this saying is trustworthy, which meant, which meant this was like a, a thing, right? This is a saying that they, they had in the early church, all right? This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the office of overseer can refer to pastors, to elders, to bishops. Those words are used interchangeably throughout Paul's letters. He uses the words presbyteros or elders to appeal to a largely Jewish audience who were very familiar with that. Every synagogue had its elders. He uses the word episkopos, which was more of a Greek word, a Gentile word used to describe their civic authorities or civil magistrates. He uses the term poemen or shepherd to talk about pastors, the fundamental role that pastors play in caring for God's people. And in this passage, he adds the term diakonos or deacon to help people understand the heart of a leader, which is not, again, to be served, but to serve and to give their lives as a ransom for many, just as Jesus did. And basically what Paul is saying here is that godly Christ-like leadership is essential. It is essential to the life of the church. It is essential to the life of our families. It is essential to the life of our communities. It is essential for the good of our nation and the good of the world. Amen? I mean, when you don't have good leadership, you are in real trouble. And we all know that. We all, we all feel that. We all experience that on some level. And the church needs good leaders, godly leaders. And the, and the reason this desire to be a godly leader is such a noble thing is because such leaders offer their lives as living demonstrations of the gospel. That is the call of godly leaders. Not to be perfect, but to offer your life as a living demonstration of the gospel in action. We do all we can to let our lives show forth the glory of the gospel. We understand that we are giving our lives in service to Christ and His church, and there can be no higher calling 
than to be asked to lead the covenant community of the people of God because the church is the primary means through which God is going to communicate to the world the gospel. So there's no higher calling. No higher calling than to serve as a leader for God's people, all right? And the call to godly leadership is a covenantal calling. That's because it's initiated by our covenant-making God. It is, it is uh, impressed upon our hearts by the covenant-sealing Holy Spirit of God and it is confirmed by the covenant people of God. That's why we just took vows together. We don't do this in secret, Right? We bring our leaders before you. They take vows, making promises to serve you. And in return, you make a promise to pray for them and support them and encourage them and submit to them along the way, right? That's what it's all about. Now, leaders who aspire to this covenantal calling must exhibit a covenantal character, all right? A covenantal character. All the list of qualifications that Paul puts in this passage, so much of it is about who we are, not what we do. Right? It's about character, not competency. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He or she must manage their own household well. By the way, don't get hung up on the gender roles here. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Refer you back to that sermon. I'm not going to go through all of that again. All right, a lot of this is culturally, you know, it's cultural and some of those kinds of things. We ordain both men and women here. Okay, you saw that. So don't get hung up there. He or she must manage their own household well with all dignity, keeping their children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage their own household, how will they care for God's church? Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, clearly this list is not exhaustive. There's a whole, other, whole a lot of other things he could have listed here. It's illustrative. It represents the bare minimum for godly leaders if they're going to bless the church and bless the world. So Paul says, first and foremost, they've got to be above reproach. Again, this doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean that we never make mistakes or that we somehow cease to be sinners saved by grace. But on balance, on balance, our observable conduct as leaders is recognized to be Christ-like in character. And our lives are intentionally submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And our lifestyles are aligned with His law and with His will and with His ways. Now, what does that look like in actual practice? Well, look at the rest of the list, right? Such a person will be devoted to their spouse. Literally, the passage says that a godly leader will be a one-woman man, right? Or a one-man woman, right, if you want to reverse it there. There's a famous story about Winston Churchill that I love who was attending a formal dinner with his wife in London. And he was asked the question, if you could be anyone else besides yourself, who would you be? Without missing a beat, Churchill took his wife Clemmie's hand and said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. Isn't that good? Got Valentine's Day coming up, guys, all right? That's a good line. All right, just offered that for free, okay? Um, <laughs> the point here, right, is that godly leaders focus all of their energy and all of their devotion on their spouse. They do not flirt. They do not seek attention or intimacy with others outside their marriage. They do not try and justify any kind of inappropriate emotional attachments to anyone other than their spouse. Godly leaders are above reproach in their marriages. Secondly, godly leaders are above reproach when it comes to their personal conduct. They exhibit self 
mastery. They're not enslaved to their desires. They're not driven by their emotions. They don't get drunk. They don't smoke pot or engage in other kinds of substance abuse. They're not quick to anger or violence. They're not given to greed. Right? They exhibit self-mastery. Furthermore, they exhibit selfless generosity. They throw open their homes and their lives to others. Hospitality is such a high value in the Scriptures, friends. I mean, you see it all over the place. In fact, the author of Hebrews suggests that we shouldn't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because, because some have entertained angels by doing so, right? He's referring back to Abraham, of course, when God literally showed up at Abraham's door, right? Godly leaders readily welcome people into their homes, readily welcome people into their lives, all right? And they, that, that still happens, of course, over in the Middle East today. It's a massive and often overlooked value in the church today. And if you really want to experience it here at Pepsi, I tell you what, hang out with some of our Indian families sometimes. There's a growing number of Indians in our community, right? We're kind of, we got a couple now Indian restaurants and an Indian grocery store. There's just like this growing Indian community in our midst. And boy, they meet here on every Saturday. They hang out here at certain holiday times. Several of their families worship with us on a regular basis. And I've been invited to, to go to their homes and, you know, for graduations, for birthdays, for other special events. And I'm telling you, no one parties like the Indians do. I mean, it is awesome. And the food and the celebration and just the hospitality, you'll spend hours together just celebrating and rejoicing. It's just amazing. And godly leaders, godly leaders make that kind of stuff happen all the time. They just welcome others into their lives and into their homes. It's awesome. Godly leaders who are above reproach not only will be devoted to their spouse and live lives marked by self-mastery and selfless generosity, they'll also manage their own families well. They'll love their children unconditionally. They'll raise them up under the covenant of grace, not of works. The, the, they'll teach them the gospel with the hope, right, that when they get older, they will not depart from the faith. Or even if they do wander for a time and play the prodigal, right, a, a godly parent will wait and pray and long for the day when that child will come back home. It's the heart of every godly parent, and godly leaders should set the example. These are just a few of the character qualities that make up uh, a godly leader. Paul also expects godly leaders to grow spiritually. Godly leaders should be constantly growing in their understanding of the faith, in their understanding of the covenant of grace. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 6, and then verse, no, and then verse 9. It says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. And they must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. You know, one of, the, one of the major problems we have in the church today is that we convey leadership way too early. We raise up leaders who don't have the experience or the spiritual depth to handle the challenges that come. It's why so many pastors are burning out. It's why so many pastors are flaming out. I don't know if you know this, but according to Barna, almost 40% of pastors have wanted to quit in the last couple of years because of the pressures of the job. Now, I, I am so thankful that has not been my experience, but it is the experience of many, many pastors, right? Almost 80% of pastors believe ministry has had a negative impact on their families. 80%. It's crazy. And as some of you know, again, it's one of the many issues I'm helping our denomination work on. And as I've done this research, one of the things that seems so blatantly clear to me is that pastors are the only profession where you take someone right out of grad school and you place them in like the position of highest authority within an organization, no wonder so many struggle to succeed. 
It's not just pastors. We're tempted whenever we come across a young, gifted, charismatic leader to raise them up. And we often do that too quickly, to put them in positions of authority before they have, again, the maturity and experience to handle the responsibilities that come with leadership. And then what so often happens is they outkick their coverage when it comes to their character, and they fall. And, it, and, it's, and it's terrible. Let me be quick to say this has little to do with age, by the way. All right? I know young people who are among the most mature believers I have ever met, and I know older people who are babes in Christ. So it's not about a person's biological age, it's about their spiritual age. Yeah. It's not about how old they are, how long they've been coming to church. It's about their walk with Jesus. And are they growing spiritually? And do they hold fast to the gospel? Do they have a clear conscience when it comes to the way they live out their faith? These are the qualities that we look for in godly leaders. In addition to that, godly leaders should have a covenantal heart. They should have a heart of humility, a heart to serve others, especially those who are lost or those who are struggling or those who are hurting or those who are in need. And this is especially true of our deacons, right? I mean, Paul says, let them be tested first, meaning you're testing their hearts to see if they have a willingness to humbly serve. That's the test. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Like their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful, faithful in all things. See, godly leaders don't think more highly of themselves than they ought. They also don't think less of themselves than they ought. They simply think of themselves less. That, that's the definition of humility, by the way. Right? They simply have a desire to be faithful. They don't need the recognition. They don't need the spotlight. They just, they just have a heart to serve. That's the deal, all right? And then finally, godly leaders who aspire to this covenantal calling, whose lives are marked by the covenant of grace, who intentionally seek to grow in their love of Christ and who exhibit that heart of humility that comes along with knowing Christ and His saving benefits, such leaders will enjoy a sterling reputation, both in the church and in the world. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 3, 7. He says, moreover, they must be well thought of by outsiders, so that they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You think about how much damage has been done to the reputation of the church by the fall of her leaders. Historically, you think of the Crusades or things like the Inquisition or leaders who supported slavery here in America. More recently, we think of the scandal of abuse in the Roman Catholic Church or many Protestant leaders who've fallen into sexual sin or the number of recent scandals as it relates to spiritual abuse. It's brutal. And the church's reputation has suffered tremendously as a result. In fact, today, during the Super Bowl, if you watch the whole thing, you're going to see a commercial or maybe a series of commercials put on by the He Gets Us campaign. Maybe you've seen these already. It's a $1 billion campaign to reintroduce Jesus to the world. And why do the people who are funding this campaign believe such a thing is necessary? Because the church has failed. This was our calling to introduce Jesus to the world, and we have failed. We have become more known for what we are against than what we are for. We are known more from our scandals than our service. We're known more for our failures than the incredible work that is happening around the world through the people of God. And this is a tragedy, friends, and it falls on the godly leaders of the church to restore her reputation. And I want to ask the worship team to come back up. And our kids will be coming back in to join us for our final song here in a minute. There's one more piece to this puzzle, according to Paul. Godly leaders receive 
a great reward. Uh, they receive a great reward. Listen to how he puts it in 1 Timothy 3.13. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, and by the way, this applies to elders and any godly leader as well, they gain a good standing for themselves. And that good standing is about our, our good standing before the Lord, okay? And great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Just because we live under the covenant of grace doesn't mean that our works don't matter. They do, friends. The Bible is clear that those who align their lives with Jesus and seek to follow his commands will receive an eternal reward in heaven. As we'll see when we get to the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, there is a crown of righteousness that is stored up for those who fight the good fight and who finish the race and who keep the faith. God rewards those who faithfully follow him. That's not why we do it, but that is what happens. God makes that so very clear. All right? Your works matter. He promises that every sacrifice that you make to advance his kingdom will be worth it. All the time you put in, all the effort you put in, all the talent that you offer to him, all the treasure that you give both to his work here at home and around the world, all that work God honors, friends. God blesses and God rewards. And this is especially true when it comes to the noble work of leadership in the church. Amen? Amen. So here's the deal. I know we just ordained a group of elders and a group of deacons, but according to the Bible, every single one of you is called to lead. Again, it may be in your homes. It may be at your school. It may be, you know, in your business or maybe some other role that you play in the world. And friends, God is calling you to be a godly leader, and the world is crying out for godly leadership. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have called each and every one of us to this noble task of godly leadership. It's not something, God, that we ever get a chance to retire from. That's, that's, that's not it. That word doesn't even appear in the Bible, God. And so we don't want to ever set this calling aside. No, we want to embrace it. We want to live into it. We want to grow into it, God. We want to be the leaders that you have called us to be. We want to be the leaders, God, that our world so desperately needs. And so whatever circles of influence that we run in, whether it's in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever that may be, God, whatever circles of influence that we run in, I pray, God, that you would continue to make us godly leaders in those places, among those people, God, so that many will be introduced to Jesus Christ. God, that is what it's all about. That is what you call us to, and we give you thanks for it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing our final song, friends.